This is an RNZ podcast. 70 years after the beginning of communist rule in China, there have been violent clashes between police and protesters in Hong Kong. That was how RNZ's morning report introduced an item on the latest round of protests in Hong Kong on Wednesday. And this is how TVNZ began its report that night. Hong Kong on fire. Smoke and tear gas filling the streets. These are just a few of the tens of thousands who turned out in defiance. And one thing they had in common was that both items were compiled from the comfort of a New Zealand newsroom. Media academic and the author of The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World, Melanie Bunce, recently told Media Watch that foreign reporting was one of the casualties of the crisis in the New Zealand media. We're also seeing the neglect of global news. So it's very uncommon to see original uh, news about international issues being made by the New Zealand media because it's just so expensive. New Zealand Herald data journalist Keith Ng was an exception to the rule last month when he filed a series from the front line of the Hong Kong protests. It was unusual for a New Zealand media organisation to have a reporter on the ground and even more unusual to have a foreign correspondent who could speak Cantonese, the language of Hong Kong. He also tweeted some of the protests, including videos of the action. Yellow flag raised in Tong Chong, official warning to disperse. The old folks in dark yellow are wearing Protect the Children vests and are essentially being volunteer human shields between the cops and the protesters. Mall is closing its doors and ushering all the protesters inside. Quite a lot of confusion. Meanwhile, McDonald's is doing a roaring trade. The evacuation order over the PA is not being respected. I've seen David Burton reviews that have gotten more people to leave. Honestly, though, it's air-conditioned in here, so I'm staying here till I get tear-gassed. The situation's gone so static that everyone's attention is, I shit you not, focused on a young man and an old man doing the bottle challenge, the bottle-flipping thing. Police are dispersing. I suppose once the protesters have successfully flipped a bottle onto its end, it's time to call it a day. I caught up with Keith earlier this week and started by asking him, as a Cantonese speaker who knows Hong Kong well, what did he make of the coverage by other Western journalists? I think there was a lot of focus on the novel tactics and the physical things that were going on. So a lot of focus on fires. Fires make great photos. And so every time there was a small fire, all the photographers basically ran there. It gives you kind of a warped perception of what is going on because it makes it seem like the tactical front line was the only front line, that it ignored all the cultural stuff, which is actually the much more important part from my point of view. So for me, this was a very strange experience of going and doing this sort of reporting in a place where I grew up, where I know the language, where I understand culture. And it was the first time that I really felt the emotional resonance of a lot of the small things that were going on. For example, in public transport, and people would break out into singing of this Hong Kong anthem, which was a deeply emotional experience for everyone there. I've always been the one to talk about, oh, but what are the rational goals? What are they trying to achieve? And always think about things in those terms. But this was the first time where I really understood how the emotional elements is really what is driving everything and that why it's really the most important thing to think about beyond what is burning and who is chasing who and, you know, the police protest action. 
So how unusual were you in being able to speak Cantonese among the foreign reporters? It's quite interesting that, that I guess a lot of the reporters are sort of in similar position to me, that, that there, were, there were some uh, sort of white Western reporters, but there were also a lot of Chinese Canadians, Chinese Australians who have come back and are sort of in a similar position where they they do know the language and they're a little bit alien to it, but are also a little bit familiar with it. Uh, and I think a lot of us had very mixed and very deeply layered reaction to that stuff. So did you see examples of non-Cantonese speakers just getting things badly wrong? Absolutely. The, the biggest one is probably... One of the New York Times columnists who came, and uh, this was this was about a month or two ago, uh, and said that everything in Hong Kong is so normal. Nothing is there. There's no big disruption. There's no graffiti, which was a really big one that everyone latched on to. Uh, and I was like, oh, God, look around. Like, everything is full of graffiti everywhere. It was just a little bit incomprehensible how you can get something like that wrong. But... There are a lot of Western reporters who have arrived, and they actually serve a really important role in that they do sort of have a special status, and there's a level of protection that is afforded the protesters when those journalists are there. And when you're there, that wouldn't have the same impact? Um, No, no. Uh, And I think uh, the relationship between local Hong Kong journalists and police is quite interesting because... They really give them a piece of their minds that that uh, it turns into sort of swearing matches between police and reporters who I guess after a hundred days, everyone gets very angry with each other when the police are sort of calling journalists cockroaches and telling them to you know using very colorful language to tell them to go away. Uh, the journalists often push back and are often i guess very upset personally as 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 Hong Kongers, to be treated that way by the police. Um, And I think that's a very different dynamic from someone like me who feels definitely like an outsider. I would never think to assert those kinds of rights to, to yell back at police. Something I didn't think I'd ever see is Chinese characters expressing curse words from Cantonese in the New Zealand Herald. <laughs> was that difficult to convince the editors to, to run Chinese characters in your story? Uh, it, it wasn't, wasn't. Uh, so so it, it doesn't say anything too bad. <laughs> like, honestly, Cantonese people sure know how to swear. So the things that I got into the Herald was very much on the very, very low end of the spectrum. Are there kind of tropes that Western reporters bring to somewhere like Hong Kong, cliches that they just use that irritate somebody like yourself? Um, I think the the protesters play into it as well. (laughs) I think in particular something like the the Be Water stuff, the quoting of Bruce Lee and playing up that side of things. I think it's a game that both sides are actively and willingly participating in, so I'm not too annoyed with it, but I do find that it doesn't get into the guts of the issue, which is often a lot murkier. So in particular, with, with the Bruce Lee thing, that it makes you focus on the tactics and the physical going-ons on the streets and ignores the political and the cultural aspects. Britain never established a democracy in Hong Kong during its 99 mm. years of rule, but it did establish a free press. To what extent has that survived? To what extent is the Hong Kong press free? It's interesting because I think everyone, at the surface level, very committed to it. Everyone says they're very committed to it. 
But over the last couple of months, we've seen it erode quite substantially. So it started off with, I guess, police being very personally aggrieved uh, about the way that they're being covered. And so there would be small things like throwing tear gas directly, uh, tear gas canister directly at journalists, which, by the way, is an incendiary device. So it's actually like quite unsafe to throw it at someone. And then there's things like using the water cannons, uh, directing them at journalists. And this is not just water that they've actually added irritants, the same kind of irritants, uh, presumably, that you find in tear gas, uh, so that when you get sprayed by the water cannon, it feels like it's not as bad as being pepper sprayed, but it's the same kind of thing. And then most recently, in the last week, Indonesian journalists got shot by a beanbag uh, in the eye. Uh, and that's that's a really... It's a really direct thing because the police had to actually point their guns at a group of journalists and to pull the trigger, which speaks to a direct attack on journalists. And you became quite acquainted with tear gas yourself and how to deal with it. I mean, I imagine that's not something you ever expected to need in your toolkit, but how do you deal with with tear gas as a reporter? Oh, so conveniently, I ha- I used to be a St. John ambulance volunteer, so that that came in real real handy. And the advice is actually really simple: wash, wash, wash. Uh, just get get the gunk out of your eye. So um, I was carrying around a bottle of saline, uh, and all you have to do is squirt it in your eye and just get it out as much as you can. How uncomfortable is it? I would rate it four out of five. <laughs> it's not the worst thing I've experienced, but it's not great. You declared in one of your Herald columns that the Hong Kong police are an army of occupation in effect. Mm. Will taking a stand like that impact on your ability to, say, report from China? Probably. On the other hand, there are hundreds of thousands of us saying the same thing all around the world. So um, I feel like I'm pretty small fries uh, to... I don't think I've quite made it to the to the list, to the A-list yet, put it that way. How did the trip come about? It's, it's unusual now for journalists to travel for things other than Rugby World Cups or, mm. or other major events. Was it your initiative? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I really pushed for it. It was a thing that I felt very strongly about and really wanted to go... My day job is a data journalist for the Herald, so this really has nothing to do with my day job. But my boss let me go, and um, it it worked out well. And are you wanting to go back? Um, A little bit. I think coming back to this idea of the cultural aspects, that right now we're seeing continuing escalations in the tactical elements of it, but in terms of how society is operating and how people think about themselves and about this movement. There's not much that I can do at the moment. So I guess it's still waiting and seeing what the government will actually do in response to try to solve the political parts of the problem. To what extent are the Hong Kong protesters linking themselves with, say, the Uyghur situation Hmm. or Taiwan? They're doing that very strongly. And I think that's something that we need to think about as well. So that we as... New Zealanders in general and New Zealand journalists in particular need to start thinking about what Hong Kong actually means for us. Um, And it's not that New Zealand will be 
occupied or controlled in the same way. It's about seeing how Chinese influence actually works, actually operates in real life. And say with China and the Hong Kong police, it wasn't that the Chinese government told the Hong Kong police to be brutal, to crack down, to do all those things. It was a slower process of corruption. It was making the Hong Kong police back its play. It was making the Hong Kong police do these things that gradually forced the Hong Kong police into a corner. And then, at that point, the Hong Kong police started to lose sense of its original mission, lose sense of its integrity. And in that sense, China didn't have to boss the Hong Kong police around. They just had to put them in that position. And so we need to start thinking about how the New Zealand government, how New Zealand businesses are being put in positions where it's starting to be allow itself to be compromised and allow itself to be used for some of those purposes and what it might mean for us and what position it will put us in 10, 20 years down the line. New Zealand is a country of immigrants now, so almost whenever there is a major event overseas, you would hope that there would be a journalist from that background. From your experience, do you think we should be making more of an effort to have people, be they Somalis, be they Pacific Islanders, reporting in the countries of origin where they speak the languages? Yeah, I think so. A very new thing that I've learned this time around is that the emotional component matters a lot in terms of how you understand these kinds of movements, that purely understanding them in terms of political analysis or economic analysis, whatever else, just doesn't quite cut it. You've got to be there and you've got to understand what people are feeling. You've got to be able to look at them in the eyes and talk to them in their own language and understand the nuances of what they're saying to really understand what the movement is about. That was Keith Ng, a data journalist with the New Zealand Herald, who last month spent three weeks in Hong Kong covering the protests.